Okay, here we are, Gospel of Mark. We're going to be on the second story in Mark chapter 3 today, starting at Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Let me bring that text up here on the screen so we can see what it is, what it looks like. Here we go. Here's how the story reads. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Now, if you've been joining us as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you know that my approach here is to ask questions of the text. I'm, I'm doing this because I find that to be a productive first or second step in, in dealing with the text and sort of a preliminary to deep Bible study. And I'm trying to demonstrate as I go through, Mark, ways that you can do this Bible study for yourself. So I ask questions of the text. And in just a minute, I'm going to go into my 12 questions, 12, some of them complex questions, compound questions uh, about this story here. My questions are likely not the same questions you have. And when I formulated these questions, might not be the same as if I were formulating them today or if I did it a week from now. So they were the questions that occurred to me as I read over the text. First question I had is, what did Jesus' withdrawal have to do with the fact that the Pharisees and Herodians were plotting against him? Uh, I asked this question because in the story right before this, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians, that is the Pharisees and the, the political adherents of Herod, were working together. These guys were natural enemies. They, they pulled different directions, but they were uniting against Jesus. And I'm wondering here in this text, we see Jesus withdrawing with his disciples. How much of the fact, how much of his withdrawal was based on the fact that, that the opposition was solidifying against him? that they were wanting to kill him. They weren't just wanting to argue with him. They weren't just wanting to lessen his influence. They weren't just wanting to recognize him as a heretic, as not properly patriotic or aligned with the right people, but they wanted to kill him. I can understand if I were in that situation, I'd say, hey, disciple, this is a good time for us to withdraw, for us to maybe leave the public for a while and go off on our own. Is that what Jesus was thinking? Maybe so. And my follow-up question to this, this is still part of question one, is what did Jesus expect his withdrawal to accomplish? Did, did he expect by withdrawing that maybe the Pharisees and the Herodians would, would lose interest? Uh, did, he, did he expect that maybe their plots to kill him would be frustrated? They think maybe I can go off and I can do my ministry in a place where they're not there so I can do it safely? Maybe so. The second question, what expectations did the disciples and the crowds have as they withdrew with Jesus? So, verse 7, if all we have is verse 7, we think that Jesus 
and his disciples, 12 guys, well, maybe 12. We actually picked the 12 in the next section. So it's unclear how many people exactly were included in the, this group designated the disciples. So let's, let's just guess 12. So there's 13 people, Jesus plus the 12, they're withdrawing. What did the disciples expect to happen at that point? What did they think was going to happen? And, and I add the crowd into my question because we go into verse 8. When they heard about all that he was doing, uh, that's a bunch of people there. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him. And that question is going to deal with where they come from. But So Jesus is trying to withdraw. He's trying to get away from the crowds. Jesus right here is failing. If he wants to get away from the crowds, he is failing. They are following. They're going where he's going. Was Jesus frustrated with this? Was Jesus disappointed? Was he sad? Was he upset that they didn't follow along? Let's see if that means somebody is sharing something here. Hey, good morning, Tilly. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning, Francis. Thanks for joining us today. Let's go back to the text here. Uh, third question. Why is the crowd described as being from Galilee? And we have Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Uh, is it not crowd from Capernaum, not from Nazareth, not from one of these other Galilean towns, or is it just a undifferentiated group that's following Jesus at this time? This huge crowd. Uh, verse 4. How did the people hear about Jesus in all the places they came from? Uh, that's verse 8. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea. Judea is south of, of Galilee. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a town in Judea. Idumea. It, Idumea. Herod was an Idumean. This, this is the New Testament era pronunciation of an Edomite. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. Have you, go, have you heard of Petra? Petra is in Idumea. And the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon are up north in what we today call Lebanon. So you have people coming from all over. Now, now I do notice an important region that's not mentioned here. You see, no mention of Samaria. Now, if you look at the map, you have Judea. You have Judea in between them is Samaria. Are there no Samarians coming out here? Samaritans? Don't know. But how did all these people hear about Jesus? How was the word getting out to them? Was it the fact that Jesus was already sending disciples out? Was it the fact that as people healed, as people experienced Jesus' power through his, through his miracles or through his teaching, that they started going out to the highways and byways saying, hey, you got to come hear this Jesus fellow. It's really exciting. Was it just word of mouth that got out? Uh, question five, why did Jesus want to be prepared for the people crowding him? Was it a matter of security, freedom of movement, claustrophobia, or a simple assessment of effectiveness? Here, here in verse nine, uh, we read, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. So Jesus sees the crowd. He knows the crowd's going to be there. 
and he knows they're going to be pushing up on it. Probably tons of sick people are there. Because uh, we see that in verse 10, for he had healed many, so those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And obviously, if they're preparing a boat, he's on the lake, right at the edge of the lake, right at the shore. So it could be, hey, hey guys, I don't want them to push me in the water. And that's what they're going to do, because they're all going to be pushing these hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. are going to be pushing forward against me to touch, for me to touch them, for them to touch me, to get the healing experience that power. So guys, let's have a boat right there. So maybe I can get out in a boat. So if they have a boat handy, that tells me a couple of things. It tells me one, that they're not too far away from where they started out in Capernaum, the place where Jesus' base was, the place where a lot of the guys had been fishermen, where they had boats ready and accessible. It could be that. Or it could be that they went to another place on the lake that had boats accessible, maybe for rent, maybe for hire. And so they could get a boat there, or, or it could be that they tried to withdraw via boat. Now, I don't think that's the case because it talks about the large crowd from Galilee following and all these other hordes. And I think it'd be hard if Jesus were going, say, at a tangent across the lake, that it'd be possible for them to follow him. So I'm thinking there was a boat of their own not too far away here. And what was Jesus' motivation here in having a boat? Uh, I think it was simply to maintain his freedom of movement. And uh, I don't think it was claustrophobia. Uh, could just be he didn't want to be pushed in the water. Uh, question six. Why does Mark tell the story retrospectively, giving the reason for his action after his action? Because we see that verse nine is the action. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding. In verse 10, we see Mark's explanation. It's a retrospective explanation. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. So, again, Mark says what Jesus did, then he goes back and explains it. Is, is there a reason that Mark doesn't do it the other way around. Is there a reason that Mark doesn't say, because so many people had been healed and were bringing forth other people to be healed and pushing him, Jesus then decided, hey guys, let's get in a boat here. What's, what's Mark's motivation here? Is there significance we should take from this? Uh, question seven, was the quest for healing the primary draw of the crowd? We have this huge crowd, people coming from not just Galilee, but Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the re, uh, reason across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon, where all these hordes of people coming primarily to be healed. Or was it maybe to see other people healed? Because that can be pretty exciting. Or was it to hear his teaching? It looks like the primary motivation here is seeking healing. Question eight, when it says that he healed many, should we take this to mean that he healed everyone who came to him? Say a hundred people come to Jesus for healing. Does that mean he healed a hundred? Or is there a reason that Mark says many and not all? Go to verse 10, for he had healed many 
so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. As he could have said, for he healed everyone who came to him. He healed all that came to him. But no, he says many. Should, should we give much, much weight to the fact that he doesn't say all? But he only says many. Uh, question nine. What was the purpose behind Jesus' healing ministry? Was Jesus' primary motivation here? Oh, I am compassionate. My heart is broken for all these sick people, all these people that are suffering, and I desperately want to see them well, and God has given me the power to see them well, so I'm going to heal them all. My objective is to express compassion. Possible motivation. We do find that believable when we look at Jesus. Are there other possible motivations? I think there is. I think it's Jesus is witnessing he's demonstrating the power of the kingdom he's demonstrating that something is on the scene now things are happening that had not happened before sure we read the old testament we see healings from time to time especially in the elijah and elisha stories but they're pretty rare now in jesus ministry healing seems pretty common jesus healing lots of people if not everybody many at the very least so what's the purpose? Uh, question 10. Why were people with unclean spirits drawn to Jesus? I still remember reading years ago in uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, Catholic 20th century theologian. Uh, he, he makes much of the fact that when we read the Bible, we only really see these stories of demons, of unclean spirits. In the Gospels, we see a little bit in Acts, see a tiny bit back in the story of Saul in, in the Old Testament. But lots of stories in the Gospels. And von Balthasar brings out the idea that the ministry of Jesus brought them out of the woodwork. So the, the demons, in, in a sense, might have been lurking, might have been behind the scenes in much of biblical history, but now in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of, of the King, of God himself, God incarnate, the demons are being sucked out, drawn out. So the, so the question here, if, if I'm thinking in terms of von Balthasar, is, is there something in Jesus that is working directly in these demons who are oppressing people and drawing them out? Or is it that people still have enough agency, even though they're demonized? They still have enough agency to say, I want deliverance, and they go to Jesus. Or maybe it's the people around them that recognize these people are demonized. We need to take them to Jesus because we've heard Jesus can do something about it. Uh, in, in my own ministry, uh, I haven't had a lot of experience with unclean spirits or demons. Uh, in, in fact, I don't remember having any experience that I could say for sure I knew that was a demon. I had experiences that, that struck me on reflection, maybe later, that was demonic or Satan is clearly at work here. And I think Satan's pretty much at work in our culture right now in multiple ways. Uh, when I look at the pandemic, my first thought isn't that the virus is Satan at work among us. 
But I think all the conflict around the pandemic, around what to do about it, and the division, multiple divisions and anger I see among God's people around it. They don't see that outrage as being of God. I see that outrage, that anger, that division as something that Satan, even if Satan's not directly causing it, Satan's saying, go boys, go ladies, go Christians, call yourself Christians. Talk about loving each other as you bite each other and attack each other. Break off from each other. I don't think that, that outraged the work of God here. So I'm praying for Satan to be bound here. Question 11. What did the unclean spirits mean when they called Jesus son of God? What effect, if any, did their speech have on the disciples and the crowd? So here are these all these people with unclean spirit, the demonized folks. They, they are being drawn or they're coming to Jesus. Whether they're coming for deliverance or, or coming because they're being drawn out of the woodwork. In the, in the sense, von Balthasar talks about. Whatever the reason, when they call Jesus the Son of God, when they say, you are the Son of God, what's the, what's the effect of that? Are, are the disciples of Jesus impressed? Ooh, even the demons, they know who you are. And they say you're the Son of God. Maybe we should believe you're the Son of God too. And what about the crowd? When all the people here in the crowd hear these demonized people say to Jesus, you are the Son of God, does that mean the crowd is inclined to think, oh, Jesus, he must be the Son of God here? Oh, then, of course, we could ask the follow-up question there. What do they mean by Son of God? Do they mean Son of God in a metaphysical sense, in a Trinitarian sense? You, you know, as Christians, we confess that God, the one God, is one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not three gods who cooperate and go do stuff together, but one God, three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. Are, are, when, when they're talking about Jesus, saying, Jesus, you're the Son of God, do they have Trinitarian theology in mind? No, I don't think so. So what do they mean by Son of God? Well, in an Old Testament sense, most of the time in the Old Testament, Son of God language, strangely enough, is King of Israel language. It's not talking about Son of God in a metaphysical sense, as if that person is himself God. Now, we as Christians contrast the, the titles Son of God, divine nature, Son of Man, human nature. Well, we get that from Christian theology. We don't get that from the New Testament. I mean, from the Old Testament. Oddly enough, Old Testament language is pretty much the reverse there. Especially look at the attributes attributed to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Those look an awful lot like divine attributes. So here's Jesus. Jesus, who we believe is the Son of God. Jesus, who we believe is the incarnate second person of the Trinity. And the demons, the demonized people are saying, you are the Son of God. What do they mean by that? We need to dive into that. I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready to give an answer to that. I have to think about it some more. Question 12. Why did Jesus order the unclean spirits not to tell others about him? Which others does Jesus have in mind? Is he thinking about unclean spirits telling other unclean spirits? 
or does he have human-to-human communication in mind? So what we're looking at here is uh, verse 11 and 12. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he, and he here is of course Jesus, gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So he's saying, hey guys, I'm, I'm having enough unclean spirits, enough demonized people here, so don't go tell any other demons that I'm here, okay? I'm going to do this, but then no more deliverance. Mm, don't think so. Uh, I think it's more likely the case that Jesus doesn't want demons as his advance team. Jesus doesn't want demons as his public relations people. Jesus doesn't want people to say, hey, we heard a bunch of demons say Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, do we expect truth from demons? Do we expect to hear a good, godly word from demons? I, I don't. What do we expect demons to do? Lie? Yeah. Deceive? Yeah. Destroy? Yeah. So even if on occasions like this, demons are saying something true, do we want what we believe advanced by their accidentally true statements? I don't think Jesus does here. I think he wants them silenced because their word, even though it happens to be accurate, is not conducive to his mission. Now, we do remember later on when the Pharisees are trying to quiet the crowds that are cheering on Jesus, that Jesus says, you're going to have trouble shutting them up because if they're shut up, even the rocks themselves are going to cry out. So all of creation, except for us humans, was recognizing who Jesus was, even demons, but not the Pharisees not the Herodians, and often not much of the crowd here. The crowd, yeah, there's a cool show here, people being healed, demons being cast out. The, the people wanting healing, oh yeah, we want to be healed, but you want anything from us, Jesus? Eh, we're, we're busy. Talk to you later. Well, that's, that's the gist of what I see here in, in this story in Mark 7 through 12. One of the things I'd take away from this is that sometimes we need to withdraw. Sometimes even when the crowds are pressing on us. Sometimes even when there's fruitful ministry to be found. We, like Jesus, need to withdraw. We need to find a time to get away from the pressure. Find a time to get alone with God. Second thing I see here is sometimes we just need to respond to people. Jesus is trying to withdraw, but the people keep coming. He doesn't say, guys, I'm trying to withdraw here, so go away. No, Jesus kept ministering to them. The third thing I'll mention here, and this is going to be the focus of my prayer, is, Lord, do a work in us that attracts people to you. That's what I see Jesus doing here. Jesus is doing something that attracts people to God and to his work. I want my life. I want the stuff I do, whether it's uh, online teaching, like what I'm doing right here, or just the way I live my life. I want it to be something that draws people to Jesus, people that makes them hungry for him. 
And I want us to have a, a ministry that brings people deliverance and brings them hope. So let's, let's pray along those lines. Father, I thank you today for this story of Jesus. Jesus who was trying to withdraw. Jesus who was trying to get out and spend time with you to rest and recover and build into the life of his disciples. But Lord, help us to learn from that. Help us to learn from that to withdraw for ourselves sometimes. But we also, I also pray this other thing. I pray that you would do a work in my life, a work in our lives, a work in our church that would draw people to you, a, a work that would demonstrate your power, that would bring healing and deliverance, that those who are oppressed and demonized today would be delivered by what we do and what we say. Show forth your power in us, Jesus. Amen. Well, we invite you to join us for worship uh, Sunday. We're going to have Sunday school online at 8 for adults. Then we have online worship at 9 on YouTube, at 11 on Facebook. And we'll also have planning to do live again outdoors in the grassy area. Where we're really praying for the number of active cases here in Freestone County to start dropping so that we can feel more comfortable coming back inside, being closer to each other. Because, man, it, it hurts to not be together. And it, I feel like we're given, there's too much occasion for Satan to mess with us here. So continue to pray. Pray for healing. Pray for deliverance. And pray for wisdom. Thanks so much for joining us today. And share this. Share this broadcast with others. Talk to you later. Bye.